welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Investing Power Hour from Chit Chat Money, number 43. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. And today, uh, it is actually 9.15 in the morning on the Pacific Coast, so we're doing a little switcheroo. Uh, it's just a better time, we think, for anyone that wants to listen. These live streams are done every Thursday morning, we think, for the foreseeable future. They're going to be at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time, 9.15 a.m. Pacific Time, and you can watch the replays on the YouTube channel. Chit chat money, or you can just listen wherever you get your podcast. Podcast, we have no preference. We're gonna get going today. We talk about on these shows any sort of investing topics, and today we got some personal finance stuff. We got semiconductor earnings, uh, AR VR report, plus Hindenburg Research's latest short report slash expose on the wealthiest man in India. Before we get to the episode, a few housekeeping items, two things. If you are a regular listener to our shows or watcher, you should subscribe to our newsletter for free and get our weekly recap on Sunday mornings plus analysis on our Tuesday episodes. The link will be in the show notes or you can search Chit Chat Money on Substack. That is the best way to keep up with the show. Second, if you enjoy the show, give us a review on either Spotify or Apple Podcast. Today's episode is presented by Stratosphere, our investing home screen for fundamental research. Stratosphere's dashboard tool lets us easily track our investments and stocks we are researching with a nifty news feed, SEC file aggregation, and a fundamental chart tool to compare companies. There is plenty more that is going on at Stratosphere. We're going to be using that during the show today. I'm sure to do some analysis, most likely for the semiconductor companies. And you can try it for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io and trying out all they have for free. You can also use promo code CCM for 15% off any paid plan if you're a professional team and want to get all the professional tools that they offer. All right, let's get to the episode. Ryan. Are you feeling this week? Earnings season has finally begun. Although, whatever happened this time, we've been left behind because no companies will be report our own uh, report until next week. We kind of we're late yeah. this this quarter. Kind of boring. It's, uh, it has been busy season, which I like. It was getting a little boring there for a while, honestly. Um, Tesla reported, but we have our big tech layoffs and Tesla. Uh, we're not allowed to say those, so we're not going to talk no, about uh, Tesla earnings. Or I, have, well, I, I have a uh, well. Here, let me start off. One quick prediction: the Tesla earnings were very normal. I guess nothing surprising. One quick prediction, though: there was a change in definition at te- uh, within their uh, with on their balance sheet. They changed their marketable securities to uh, cash, cash equivalents, and investments. 
And they spent $4 billion last quarter on an investment. I predict that Tesla used their balance sheet to go into the Twitter deal. What do you think? I think they would have had to file a certain SEC filing. Now, obviously, Musk has been known not to file certain SEC filings, but that would be... I mean, he loves his lawsuits, but that would be a, quite the lawsuit, a shareholder lawsuit. I we'll see when the 10Q comes out. I don't know when if if it has, but I, I I think it's I think it would be such a coincidence for them to change their definition the quarter that the Tesla the Twitter deal closes, and you know they need financing. I would be. Yeah. I, I, it, it seems like a bit of a coincidence. Of course, it actually could be a coincidence, but that's my that's my wild prediction from seeing that, from following Tesla for so long, from following Musk, knowing his antics. He could do that, but I guess we'll we'll know for sure when they file their uh, quarterly SEC filing. Uh, but either way, any any earnings you've been looking at this week? I followed Texas Instruments, which I guess we'll be talking about on the uh, what you call it. When I hit that semiconductor segment, but any earnings that have caught your eye? I read Boeing's. Boeing's looked fine. Microsoft's is interesting just because of its repercussions or its what it signals for the cloud market generally. Um, I don't. I mean, I've read some other ones that were fine. I think SaaS as a whole is going to have a difficult period. I think, and it's not like some revolutionary take but we've been we've been looking through salesforce this week i read through service now and service now actually did all right um but i would just imagine that like slower new business formation especially in the private sector is going to hurt a lot of these software companies overall i agree i agree i think that's my big worry for a lot of these companies that sell to other enterprises that may have a focus on the startup uh, area is it could be a rough three years. And the last, say, 2015 through 2021, where the revenue growth could have been phenomenal. And they were just talking about land and expand, land and expand, land and expand. We could be going through a whole new paradigm the next six years where the sales staffs are smaller. Land and, and contracts. Yeah, or just retrench, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, that's one thing I'm thinking about is like, for one, there's going to be slower new business formation, even if you've got a sticky product. So, you know, Salesforce, for example, we're going to talk about them probably tomorrow, but it won't, recording won't come out until next week. Um, You are in 90% of Fortune 500 businesses, and there's kind of this, there's obviously a lot of layoffs going on. A lot of companies have basically outlined the fact that they're going to try to contract their employee base. So like if you charge on a per seat model, you're either going to have to raise prices. And for some software companies, that's a really risky proposition um, or find new customers as a way to grow your top line. It's difficult. We will see. Yeah, we will see. It's, yeah, look, specifically, we don't need to talk about Salesforce too much, but yeah, if, you're, <laughs> if your market's contracting or going through a rough patch, it's going to be rough. And especially 
Yeah, and they have that activist investor coming in, actually multiple, which will be fun to talk about as well. But we don't want to spoil that episode. Let's go to any other topics, Ryan. We said we we have these this personal financing that you came up with. I don't know if you want to start with that or your VR. We don't have to is, start with that. I just want VR is VR really the future? Which I think it was fun. I haven't read that article yet, but I'm gonna let you. Long. Yeah, I'm gonna let you go through your summary without any interruptions if you want. Yeah, and. I laid out, we, we never do these, but I laid out a bunch of personal finance questions for Brett and I to answer because I think sub, I've been listening to some other shows. I think that stuff really resonates with people, even though our situations might be different, but like Ryan wants to make money is what he's saying. Yeah. I want get more, more people, some sort of candor around like how we personally invest. Cause I don't think we actually like talk about it that much and like how we spend money. But anyway, let's do that later on let's talk about the metaverse or lack thereof i should say uh matthew ball who's really just a good writer overall i think he's a vc runs a vc firm as well um had this long piece about where really is the metaverse at and versus like how much has been spent how much has been invested and so he has a bunch of different terms for it and i'm gonna get stuff wrong and frankly i stopped to be totally honest i stopped reading after a certain point but I got the gist of the article and he lays out a bunch of different, all the investments that have been made basically by a bunch of different companies. And this isn't everyone, but I'm going to go through some of them. So um, Magic Leap, which has, uh, they're basically a well-funded private company. I think they had at one point a $7 billion valuation in 2019. They were founded in 2010 and they launched, so far they've launched two different versions of VR goggles. Um, Microsoft, started developing the HoloLens in 2010. And it's since released two different models, one in 2016, one in 2019. Keep in mind, that's where a lot of their recent layoffs were focused. Uh, the first Google Glass prototype was launched in 2011. PlayStation debuted its VR platform in 2016. Oculus was acquired by Met Facebook in 2014. And Meta has now come out with a number of different models. Everyone kind of knows the, the Meta story. Um, Snapchat bought Virgin's Labs in 2014 and debuted the Snap Spectacles in 2016. Think about all this stuff that's gone on and every time someone's, oh, this, you know, this could be a huge thing. Amazon released its first Echo Frames in 2019. Um, Have you heard of, had you heard of those? I never heard of that. I remember someone talking about like Alexa enabled glasses um, where it's basically like you just got Alexa and you can like talk, but I honestly no, I, I I I've never seen them. I wonder if they like pull them oh. off the market. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, and then he also kind of went on and Zuckerberg had mentioned in 2015 and 2016 that he thinks AR glasses are going to be, he said within a decade, AR glasses are going to be a part of normal life. Um and and a lot of other CEOs have kind of reiterated that sentiment where it's like it's just a matter of time kind of thing. And all these companies have invested. And where are we at basically now? Like what kind of development have we seen? Basically, he goes in and says, well, the technology's gotten a little better, but the applications are still pretty niche and they're typically like commercial applications. So it's more like, you know, maybe someone uses them for like a simulation in a lab or something like that. But then he also has this really kind of interesting quote where he says, as of March, 2022, 
this is when he's trying to talk about the consumer market. The average PlayStation 5 owner used the device 50 hours per month or roughly two hours a day, 15% more than the PlayStation 4 at the same point in its life cycle. Annual sales of the Xbox and PlayStation also continue to grow in their third year. And this is in spite of supply chain shortage. Uh, while MetaQuest 2 declined in its second year. Um, he go he goes on to basically talk about all the technical challenges involved in sort of a um a successful consumer air glasses uh heat because you the you have to have the fans and there's so much computation that has to go on or compute processing power that has to go on in such a small um device weight because it can't be too heavy if it's on you know consumers aren't going to wear these 24 7 on their face if they're too heavy battery life resolution frame rate cameras sensors cost size it basically goes through all these different things these technical challenges where they've maybe advanced a little bit but they're still so inferior to any other computing device that we have um and i just kind of thought like people you know there was all this metaverse hubbub two years ago or when meta really started kind of plowing money into one, this one year ago. But yeah. One year ago, the, this was, this has been talked about for so long. It's been invested in and tried out by the most well-capitalized companies in the world for the last 13 years. Like, I, and that we're nowhere closer to a really like successful consumer grade uh device and i just saw microsoft shut down basically their entire division yeah and my kind of takeaway here in reading this article was that if i'm a meta shareholder reading this i would be so concerned because number one it like just in terms of like technical challenges and zuckerberg said this before it's going to be hard as hell to build like maybe impossible to build something really successful. Um, it probably won't have con- true consumer adoption, even if it succeeds eventually. It won't have consumer adoption for at least four years. And then the more progress they make, I think the more they'll spend because they'll feel like they're closer. And And, and it's like, they're not going to want to make that progress. And then in three years say, nah, we're not seeing the, we're not seeing the benefits. You've changed your name. You've invested all this stuff. You've got like so, so much progress that you think you've made. Like I would be so concerned as a shareholder. Um, I really recommend reading this article because it really talks through like all the technical aspects and how difficult it is to build a, you know, a really good platform like this. The other part uh, or device like this, is like the other devices they're competing against the phone, the computer, mm-hmm. the PlayStation, the Xbox, the, the gaming consoles, like those are getting better each year. Like they're not staying in one spot. So even if they release something that was like the equivalent of like, it would be the equivalent of something, a computing device 20 years ago. So it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I really don't see this being a huge success. I mean, VR. AR, yeah, there's like a theoretical world in which like AR glasses are cool, but it's still like a question as to whether or not they'll be worn on a daily basis. And so, I don't know, I would be, uh, if I'm a shareholder, if I'm a meta shareholder here, I'd be concerned. He talks about it as probably something like um, 
sort of like being it, its first success will be as sort of an ancillary feature to like or a supplement to people's work processes so like you know construction applications or um doctors performing like sample surgeries that kind of thing that would make sense to me but for the investment that the companies are making in this field like it's gonna have to be more than those applications i agree i agree with all points the it reminds me a lot of the self-driving industry as well where it goes through the hype cycle and then it, it falls back but then it goes through another hype cycle and then people i guess or i think a lot of whether it's analysts or really probably the technology focused ones they take that gartner hype cycle which has the you know hype cycle then the trough thing and then you get back to the actual progress but i think that's a bit of a misleading chart because a lot of the times you just go through the hype cycle over and over and over and over again and then no one actually cares about the product so it remind the self-driving and the arvr stuff slash metaverse reminds me of everything and when you actually talk about who's what companies are succeeding with building and it's really just gaming entertainment or interactive entertainment experiences online. You have Roblox, who is what I would say on a software front, probably, and this is conservative, 100 times further than Meta. In terms of just like what, adoption? Adoption plus tech on the software front. The, I'm talking about, you know, the inter, the interactive worlds. I mean, look at the prototypes on the software front that Meta puts out and then look at what people can do on Roblox. It's not even close. And then you also have the gaming companies, which are pretty self-explanatory. You have those interactive games like Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, Fortnite, Apex Legends. I forget. I forget. There, there's a lot of them. So yeah, I, I think it, it. the people that I think it's just another example of not getting, you don't want to get caught up in the hype cycle. Um, it's really easy to do. And then once you get caught up in the hype cycle, because we've gotten caught up in hype cycles before, it happens when you're a young investor. Try to learn from it because you can recognize the patterns. Again, what's the hype cycle right now? You know the answer, Ryan. AI? Yeah. And, yep. And specifically the, AI, um, what do they call them? LLM, language learning modules. Yeah, Chat GPT. We got uh, the news outlets talking about how uh, the Google founders are flying back frantically from their private islands to to stop this, even though Alphabet owns an AI company that solved all proteins folding structure with a with a simple tool in a like two years ago. So, you know, they're probably so far behind, but either way, either way, that's off topic. Uh, anything else here, Ryan, before we move on to something else? No, no, not really. Let's talk about Hindenburg. Cause I found this pretty interesting. Yeah. So I'll try to keep this as short as possible, but just to summarize for anyone listening, I'll, uh, I want to first off Hindenburg, let's get you a formatter because Bullet points for endless bullet points. We're, we're, we got to stop with that. Let's get you a presentation team. But besides that, uh, good report. So Hindenburg is really trying, I would say, to take down India's richest man and expose him as a fraud, which if 
the report is true, he definitely is. So Hindenburg is the company, is the research company that exposed the Nikola fraud. Um, they just wrote a comprehensive research report on this Indian company called the Adani Group, uh, which is apparently committing stock pumping and accounting fraud. So those are the two main allegations. For more information, I would search Hindenburg Research Online. You can find the comprehensive report. We're not going to cover everything here because that would take the entire show. For a little context, what is the Adani Group or... I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a conglomerate in India run by Gautam Adani. Again, Indian names might be mispronouncing it. And it's considered a family business. There are seven publicly traded stocks. At the time of the report, they had a market value of $218 billion in USD. So quite large, one of the largest companies in India, maybe combined the largest company in India. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, and the founder is valued at a whopping $120 billion. So one of the top five richest people in the world. $100 billion of that has been added in the last three years. Because if you look at their stock charts, they are soaring. And the company owns infrastructure assets. So it's not like they were a consumer platform. Like a, they came up with the next social media product and it just totally went viral like a TikTok. These are not things that are going to be growing at a rate that would uh, allow you, you know, the stock shouldn't be going up a thousand percent in three years. So what is Hindenburg alleging? There are two overarching themes. One, stock, stock manipulation. They have these shell companies that apparently are uh, do wash sales to drive shares higher and accounting fraud schemes. I have a few quotes here for listeners that I think are important. So here's one of the quotes that Hindenburg said. Quote, we have identified 38 Mauritius shell companies controlled by Vinod Adani or close associates. We have identified entities that are also surreptitiously. Yes, oh, right. Hold on. Meridius. What, what is Meridius? that? Explain it. Meridius. That's a country. Okay. Is there, I, thought, I thought they kept saying Meridius. I thought they. I'm uh, pretty sure. That's a, that's a I thought that was like a subsidiary that they had. Anyway. Well, uh, I, I will. Confirm. Oh, that's where they have their shell. Yeah, it's a country in East Africa. It's yeah, I think it's one of those areas where you can do a lot of uh, less regulated stuff, sort of like kind of right. some of the Caribbean islands. All right, me. continue. Continuing the quote, we've identified entities that are all also surreptitiously controlled by Vinod Adani in Cyprus, UAE, Singapore, and several Caribbean islands. Many of the Vinod Adani associated entities have no obvious signs of operations, including no reported employees, no independent addresses or phone numbers, and no meaningful online presence. Despite this, they have collectively moved billions of dollars into Indian Adani publicly listed and private entities, often without required disclosure of the related party nature of the deals. For reference, Vinod Adani is the founder's older brother. So right off the bat, that is suspicious, I would say. doesn't prove anything, but that's suspicious. Here are a few other quotes. I'll try to keep it short. Quote, the Vinadadani shell seemed to serve several functions, including one, stock parking slash stock manipulation, two, and laundering money through Adani's private companies onto the listed company's balance sheets in order to maintain the appearance of financial health and solvency. I'll say that last part again. In order to maintain the appearance of financial health and sol solvency, this seems like a classic accounting fraud case classic Enron-style fraud, if true. All right, here's another quote. In addition to using offshore capital to park stock, we found numerous examples of offshore shells sending money through onshore private Adani companies onto listed public Adani companies. The funds 
then seem to be used to engineer Adani's accounting uh, parentheses, whether by bolstering its reported profit or cash flows uh, and parentheses, <laughs> cushioning its capital balances in order to make listed entities appear more credit worthy or simply move back out to other parts of the Adani empire where capital is needed. To sum it up, they are moving money around to make things look stronger than they appear and at the same time are performing a lot of wash sales and stock stock manipulation to pump up the stock, I guess. And you can see with the stock prices, they are soaring. And if you look at the Indian market, it is at, you don't want to call it a bubble because I don't know too much about the Indian market, but it is at a premium valuation. Um, If we also look there are a ton of related party transactions that haven't been properly disclosed. So that's a, a violation of the Indian securities laws. And then as another note, the Adani companies have had five chief financial officers over the last eight years, which Hindenburg says is a, you know an obvious red flag for potential accounting issues. Lastly, to be fair, as people that do not study the Indian market, we do not know what is true or not in this report. However, if it does turn out to be true, this will be, as they said, the largest corporate fraud in world history. Well, I thought they were talking about American company and what their, uh, I guess if anyone doesn't know, they, they, they did a very big tweet about they were exposing the largest corporate fraud in history. A lot, I think a lot of people thought it would be an American company, given their audience and given where they're located. However, we'll take this uh, as a consolation prize, because if they did an American company with over a $200 billion market cap, that would have been some company that was huge and well, yeah. uh, well respected. It, it would have been the only thing we talked about this show. I mean, I was, yeah, I was a little bummed to find out it was a company I'd honestly never heard of. Uh, but uh, okay. I read through most of this. I, I don't think there's any way that they aren't doing something fraudulent. Like obviously there, there is so much um, irregulated. I mean, it's every red flag in the book from like family members running your, uh, you know, subsidiaries and stuff to shell companies with zero operations. Yeah. Um, it Flipping it around. You don't do these things if you are on the up and up. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and it's just like I don't know. Like you can go through all these things. Like there's why? Why do you need 38 shell companies without operations? Yeah, there's literally point. no reason. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, but my thing here is like I doubt anything comes of this because of where they're located. And the relation, their relationship to the government in India. Yeah. 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 Maybe that's, maybe India takes like a closer look or tries to audit them in a way that's like, finds them or something. But I think for it to, and there was like Hindenburg said this today is Adani group threatened legal action against them. And Hindenburg said like, you know, bring it on, file a lawsuit in the U S and we'd love to partake. That's. I don't think it's going to happen in the U.S. They're probably just gonna. It's going to become India's yeah. fraud over there, and nothing's going to come of it. I also think it probably looks bad for 
India regulatory bodies to have it exposed by an American group. And then like, I don't know. Don't you, th- don't you think that's kind of a bad look to say like some American company took down a richest man? A hundred percent. And yeah, he's there, whatever, Bill Gates, Buffett, probably more Buffett, I guess. Richest person in India, one of the richest people in the world. What's interesting, though, is that it's only going to get bigger and eventually it's going to blow up. Two things here that I was trying to look at, like what the impact could be on this company. I read some article from somewhere. I'm not sure how reliable this journalist take is because the companies are so complicated, but they said that Adani is one of India's biggest business groups, which I guess is true, and is often deemed one that cannot be allowed to fail. So there you go. As well, they talked about how a lot of I forget what it is, like individual investors at banks and a lot of these pension funds and a lot of stuff owns these Adani Enterprise stocks. So if they went full Enron and totally collapsed, it would be it'd be bad for the Indian economy. But it, here's the flip side though. Are they just gonna let it get bigger? Like yeah, what ha- what what happens? Because there's no end game here where the stock shouldn't be down 80 to 90%. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I mean, my biggest tell here potentially is this was a pretty damning report. Like if you read through this whole thing, it's, it would be really hard to be uh, an Adani shareholder, but in that report, it said like 30 to 40% of daily volume like just under half uh, potentially of daily volume is between their own companies, shell companies, they estimate. The stock after this like hugely damning report barely moved. Like that, that to me is a tell that like they are not, uh, they are the ones that are trading it. Yeah. And it's weird because you, you can say on paper, this person is worth $120 billion, but in reality, unless they are able to do some sort of stock sale where he gets the cash out and adds on some bag holders, which as we know can happen in the US with a public, you know, with some highly liquid stocks, but is not, you know, maybe not, you know, with something that is actually manipulated so much over in India. Um, and not and not just because it's in India, it's just this unique situation. The, the the wealth is in there. I just don't know what the end game of this Adani group is. Are they going to yeah? Are they try, are they going to just sell a lot of stock and you know raise capital or something? Or what? I just don't get the, I don't I don't get the deal here because yeah, you can say okay, I'm worth 120 billion dollars, but your stock's at I have no idea what it is, but let's say it's an infrastructure company, and it's at 20 times book value. Okay, fine, great, <laughs> congratulations. Well, I think being on the Forbes richest list gives you almost like unlimited access to capital. People like they can probably borrow at will because people are like, well, he's going to pay it back. You know, he's the richest man. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, we don't know their, we haven't looked at their annual report or anything. So we're flying a little bit blind here. But yes, here, here's before we move on to another topic though. And we'll try to tie it back to, you know, in any investing lessons. How do you avoid investing in companies that could be potentially doing this? Because you can never guarantee that a company you own is not committing fraud, as Buffett once said. Then this is a paraphrase. 
He said, there's likely fraud going on at Berkshire Hathaway right now. We just don't know it. You can't stop, you know, at some level, there probably is from someone. So at large enough companies, there's going to be fraud. But what about not when it's fraud from the top? How do you kind of look for the telltale signs? I'll give a couple. One, it is the complicated ownership structure and complicated corporate structures that you cannot understand. Two, it is the, how do I say it? The earnings don't turn into cash flow, I guess, in a manner where you can make sense of it. In a, if you get what I mean, where you can't say, okay, this did this and this should turn into cash, but where is it showing up? That's clearly what's going on here, I believe, uh, if, if the Hindenburg report is true. But well, what do you think, Ryan? Any, um, any other red flags? I mean, the executive turnover has got to be one. The financial department stuff, shenanigans have always got to be something. Well, yeah, I mean, um, five CSOs in eight years, that's a red flag. Um, the, the, the biggest one, and because you read through this and you think like, damn, it would have been really hard to, with like the shell entities, unless you did some like real investigative work, like it's hard to figure that stuff out. Um, so just like understanding the corporate structure, for one, invest in geographies where you understand the rule of law, that you trust the rule of law, um, that maybe you know the auditor that hasn't saved every one, but like an auditor with a stellar reputation. Oh, yeah, they talked about their auditor is for the Adani group is is a total sham. Not um, a sham. I don't call it a sham, but I think they have captured that auditor group because it's so tiny. And they're probably their largest client by far. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like hard to find these ones. I guess there's a lot of just gut feel around management. Also, if a, if a, a company larger than, I would say, $50 billion is up, what was it, a thousand percent in three years? Uh, I think it was three. Honestly, I think it was 3,000, but I don't remember exactly. Let's say at least a thousand percent. If I ever see that, like that, that type of growth, it's like, you got to stop and pause. Even if oh, the results I mean, are phenomenal on paper, it's like, obviously that can't continue forever, you know? Yeah. It's, un- it's honestly, if that happens, it's uninvestable to me for multiple years following. Yeah. I agree. And it, this is just like, and I think this is so important for people to look at because again, it comes back to that. You know, we're Buffett and Munger fanboys, the classic Munger quote, I want to know where I'm going to die so I don't go there. And that, that's really this. Like, this is a good lesson in that. Because if you're an investor in the Adani group, you're saying, like, you could die, like, not actually die, but you could die. And basically what he means by die, what Munger means by die is permanent loss capital. And this is the situation where you could die. And you just don't want to go there. Why, why, why would you risk jumping off, a, you know, doing some evil Knievel stunt if we're going to do this analogy further? But I think that covers uh, that unless you have anything else, Ryan. Let's do personal finance. Huh? Should we do that? All right. Now? Yeah. You, you lead that. Um, why don't we? Yeah. We'll hit the stratosphere segments for the semiconductor one. While you load up the segment, I'll try to uh, look at some charts on here that could be fun for everyone to see and listen. All right. I just threw out a bunch of quotes because we'd never talk personal finance, but I think 
people we've gotten kind of inquiries before about like you know what how do we invest kind of thing so um i am gonna give some of our i've given us some questions um that hopefully will be of interest to listeners some of these are kind of (laughs) i guess difficult to answer or very like like everyone's own situation you know i think What's the quote? Personal finance is more personal than it is finance. Ryan, you would call that what personal? Yeah, it is personal finance. So I don't think, you know. Yeah. All right. Let's let's start with this one. What are two things you do to save money? This is like very basic, I know, but uh, is there anything you do in particular? All right. Yeah, I can go first. I am frugal with uh, restaurants and alcohol i guess at restaurants or bars i try to just eat out once a week or so if i'm by myself and obviously if you're with the group you might do it more and then if i'm drinking away from home or if i'm in a situation where you can buy drinks away from home i I mean i try and again sometimes this might not actually happen but i'm trying my best to only have two to three drinks maximum because it's just not worth what you're going to be spending if you have $100 weekly alcohol and restaurant tabs, which is easy to do if you go out to eat, say, four to five times a week and have alcohol in each one of those meals, that can easily add up to $500 a month, even $1,000 a month, depending on where you're living in savings, which I don't think it's worth it on the flip side, especially the alcohol part of it. And then the third one is I strictly, unless I'm in a situation where you really need an Uber, uh, I strictly avoid DoorDash and Uber because there's money sucks. So thoughts on that. Do you do those at all? That was my first, my first one. Uh, DoorDash? Is, no, the, is the more so the drinking, honestly, because the drink, I, I think like maybe this is more like a, a life habit, but the, uh, if you spend a lot of money on drinks throughout the week, especially if you do so in sort of one night, if you, has, be a, if you want to be an alcoholic at home, go right ahead. That's pretty cheap. <laughs> if if it has knock-on effects or has knock-on costs as well, like for one, obviously drinks out at bars and restaurants are going to be more expensive. Um, you probably lose track of your spending if you have too much. And then on top of it, you likely require an Uber, which is expensive as well. Um, you might feel less uh you might feel so hungover that you want to order food as opposed to make it yourself the next day that kind of thing it just really i found personally like you know and it was tough because there's like the college period but the less the the less i consume alcohol the more money i save just in general um 100 percent. and i know like it's fun for some people and and you know i would say you you know you can have a good time but you can have a good time with one. Out. Yeah, you can have a good time with one to one to two drinks, um, right? Because maybe you, the young people are rolling their eyes that listen to this, but the, well, there there's very few. Looking at our analytics, there are very few people that are younger than us that listen. I to the show, gen, I like. I truly recommend if if you're in that situation and you're trying to save money, like let that be the first thing you pull back spending on. Yeah, um, so easy, so easy. Other things I do to save money. Well, I drive to the office, which is which I know, Brett. You you, you know you live close to the office and you usually work from home. But uh, trying to 
prep everything for the next day, the night before also saves me a lot of money. Like talking the, food, food, um, making coffee, basically having it set up so that I can just make coffee easily on my way out as opposed to like picking something up, having anything that I need for like the gym ready to go. So I don't have to like drive to and from like just being prepped for the whole next day prevents a lot of like random costs throughout the day. Um, so that's a huge one. I still eat out. Like I still have like my Chipotle's throughout the week, but I try to limit like the big restaurant bills. Yeah. And here's the thing though. Everyone's got their, their own preferences or what they enjoy. And personally, I don't think it's worth it to spend 150 bucks on alcohol at a bar. If that's really what you enjoy, go for it. But you got to find something within your life that you're probably spending money on that you don't enjoy that much. And then just take that part out because that's going to be the easiest one to eliminate. But let's keep moving, Ryan, so we can get to other topics before the end. That leads well into my second one, which is indulgences. Two things that you actually choose to spend up on that maybe other people don't. Okay. I have a few. uh, I will spend up on electronics or so computers, smartphones, whatever, if I need to, because I think it's worth it to have really well running electronics. I also think that includes fast internet as well. You got to pay 20 bucks a more a month for good internet. I mean, that is well worth it. And then I will also pay it for fresh food or high quality produce, whatever it is at the grocery store, because I think the value there is very high versus the price you pay. And plus something I enjoy uh, cooking at home. So what about you? Uh, all right. To, I guess, travel. I know that's super basic, um, but I'm, I know uh, I try to, I try to avoid that one, but cause I know that's everyone, but yeah. All right. And this one is maybe a better takeaway for investors. Investing blogs or like memberships that you have to pay for. And I, this is not a plug for anyone in particular, but I've like, I used to be really reluctant to kind of spend up on like my own, like if I wanted to read like an investing blog or even like the Wall Street Journal or something like that, I was reluctant to do it because unless that we got like some sort of a discount through the podcast, like if someone, was like, oh, you sponsor us, we, you know, then I was like, oh, then I'll do it kind of thing. They are super valuable. And even if it's like, not necessarily for like recommendations, but just for like process and seeing how people kind of analyze information, it constantly gives you something to read. Um, So it's not always just for generating new ideas as opposed to like seeing how other people think in the industry. I think that's like, and I think those are the kind of things that are worth paying up for. Yep. All right. Third question. This one is, uh, we might be way off the mark or I might, but how much do you think you would need to retire at the age of 50? Okay. So in this one, I'm assuming, because I thought about it for a little bit, I'm assuming no inflation. So all prices for everything are the same as they are today. And I'm assuming I have no pension or no income streams. You can have a different one if you assume inflation. All right. Um, So at today's inflation prices, I'm assuming $2 million, just looking at it. And I'm also assuming I have no family at that time. So yeah, and if you have a family, obviously you might bump that up to three million or something. Yeah, I think I was probably in the same ballpark. I assumed costs would be higher, so some inflation. I said four million, um, which could—that's pretty much pricing in inflation from now till then. I know some people might think that's either high or low. My thought here is that wh- how much do I need? To have a portfolio portfolio where it dividends me a hundred k, and so I think that's like a two and a half percent dividend yield on four million. 
I think that's very doable to do without trying to go just like purely for like the dividend players where I could also have like a portion of my investing that's like pure total return efforts versus like actual income. So that was kind of my thought. And then on top of it, you know, you're going to have, uh, that's kind of 50 is pretty early to retire those like your prime well, you, earning years. So you also want to be conservative on that type of stuff. You don't want to run out. You got to be conservative. Yeah. But as you can see, we're, uh, we're not retirement specialists. Okay. These ones are a little more fun. Investing related. What is the best investment you've ever made? Well, I'm going to go with numbers and it is buying stitch fix call options in 2020. It was like a year long one. Then going on the numbers, <laughs> that's the best investment I've ever made by far. And then worst one is I put some money when I first started out into a penny stock, which turned out to be classic penny stock scheme. Um, when I first opened a brokerage account, luckily not an absurd amount of money, but clearly the worst investment I've ever made because, you know, it, it was easy to see why why I shouldn't invest in that. But what about you? Yeah, I think the best one in percentage terms for me, and we kind of we went in on that stitch fix call option, which we're just like not encouraging in any way because we really was just pure luck, frankly. Um, in percentage terms, and I maybe nominally, I think Square was the best investment I ever made. Mm, yeah, I ended up selling it, and I don't own it today, but it ended up just being kind of coincidentally really good timing. And then probably, kind of more recently, Sprouts Farmers Market was probably the best nominally. Yeah, what was great about Sprouts, and I, I hate that this is a part of my mentality, is that everyone, no one was with us except for one person. Mr. Jim Gillies. No one was. Everyone was. Well, I would say, oh, yeah, what was your favorite stock right now? I'd say Sprouts Farmers Market. They go, eh. Yeah, I don't really like that. And I'd go, all right. And then it, 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 it like not doubled, but went up like 50%. And I was like, that's oh, right. We're but like, in reality, it doesn't matter. Even if everyone liked it and it did well, it, it, shouldn't, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. We're like, it's a good business. Like, we're, we're, like, we're like, it's a fine business. That's at six or seven times cash flow. And people are saying, you know, it's grocery, right? <laughs> like, I know. Yeah, it's, that, that it's, should it matter. Show, like, you don't need, you don't need a great business to make a great investment. Yeah, that is uh, correct. Also, it can also be an indicator if you are the, if no one else is talking about investment, you got to trust yourself that you're making the right call because a lot of the times, if you're saying, and a lot of people do this, they just want to be comfortable within the crowd. If you're only going to buy something because that a lot of people are, say, talking about is on CNBC, on the news all the time, you could be the last one to the table and there might not be any opportunity there left. If you know for a fact you're not seeing any discussion on this around the internet, TV, wherever, on a company, you're the first one, say, from your sphere that has found it, that could mean an even better opportunity because it's undiscovered. Okay, worst investment for me. And this is kind of funny because we still own it. I think it was Spotify, honestly, like nominally and on nominal. probably on a percentage basis too. Um, granted, our cost basis has come down, but I think it's ironic because that's the business that I feel like I understand the best of anything I own. And a lot of that just comes from like running the podcast and having the um, distributing on a podcast owned platform or Spotify owned platform made me think like, oh, I know the business better than you know most and I can see the opportunity here. Don't conflate understanding of a business with the actual return potential. Oh, it's, so I think that's dangerous. like the easiest thing to do. 
it's very dangerous. You can research any business for four hours a day and you'll convince yourself it's the next. It doesn't Amazon. make it a better investment. The more yeah. you know about it. Yeah. The returns are going to be the returns no matter if you spend an hour looking at the summary on the annual report versus if you spend three years looking at how the sales staff's go-to-market strategy and taking 20 expert calls. If you buy the stock at the same date, the returns will be the same. All right. Uh, this one's a little more fun. You have to guess. If you were looking at your Roth IRA in 2033, so 10 years from today, what do you think will be the largest position? I think it will be Nelnet. And this is not recommendation at all. It's just how I uh, go about it. I'm reinvesting dividends with that one. And the way I run in my Roth IRA is just to give it to some conglomerates I think are very smart and have a great long-term potential. So I think it would be Nelnet. Pretty boring. That's just a boring conglomerate that I think is pretty really diversified. But what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, it's kind of funny because Nelnet's my largest day in the Roth IRA by a long shot. But I would say probably Match Group or Autodesk just because I think they have more like kind of compounding potential um, and markets to to grow into. Although Nelnet, I think uh, Nelnet could be just like a much different business in 10 years. Mash Group and Autodesk, I think, could just be much larger businesses. Yeah, well, hey, that, that that's why the opportunity is in Nelnet because they probably compounded and book value is not the right term for Autodesk, but they probably compounded their intrinsic value at a higher rate than Autodesk for the last 10 years, 17% a year. Book value per share plus dividends and Nelnet. So maybe you we'll think it's Autodesk? Uh, hard to tell. I don't know. I feel like the Autodesk is revenue, but yeah. All right. Last one here. If you could give one piece of advice to someone who is trying to work in the world of investing, what would it be? Okay, well, this one is hard because I've never worked in the investing world in a formal capacity except for myself. So really, don't take my advice. But that being said, I would say you got to choose an area that you want to work in, are also passionate about, so are passionate about, and think you have skills in. So skills plus passion, regardless of what the company offers, like or what company or organization offers you the best salary when you're first starting. because. If you provide value, the money is going to take care of itself. And you just get see all these people get trapped and like, oh, I got to have the best salary coming out of college. And I just think that's the wrong way to go about it because uh, I don't know. Do you agree or disagree with any of that? No, I think that's the right way to go. You're also going to be like, you can earn a lot of money eventually, I think in like most fields, but. So finding something you actually care about to do, like even if you do it for cheap at the start, like if you're really good at it and, and you're passionate about it, I think you'll eventually get compensated for it. And if you become the best at something or a top in your field, you're going to get compensated. So, yeah. All right. Mine was a little more investing centric. This is more like ways to kind of better yourself as an investor, but I'm stealing this idea from... There's this kind of famous value investor who's passed away now, but his name was Peter Kundil. Um I think he ran a Canadian fund um, and he had this philosophy that there's always something to do, which is kind of interesting given that like you'll also get paid to sit on your hands. If you're an investor and you're not supposed to do a lot, but like there's always research to do essentially. So I think if you're looking to work in investing or just become a better investor, 
you benefit from like this is like the form of hard work in the industry, which is like find something to do. So read a 10K of a business you've never heard of, read a book on an industry you aren't familiar with. If you own companies, but you don't really like uh, try financial modeling or anything like that, maybe just try once, like just go out and kind of build a spreadsheet for a holding you have on what you think the business will be able to earn. Uh, I think a lot of people don't really, or like maybe intimidated by doing the valuation work. And don't uh, worry because no one's going to look at it. I don't want anyone to see our spreadsheets because they are hilariously low complication. Uh, yeah. So if anyone saw ours, the, the people that love making complicated spreadsheets would laugh us out of the room. Um, yeah. But I mean, you, you can should, make it as they're, simple they're only, as complicated you want, as you want. Yeah. They're only for yourself. So they can be, they can be very helpful. I think also within that, make some charts. Of it because when you say. look, okay, sorry, I'm stealing your thunder, but if you make it, it's way easier to see the numbers you're looking at. Yeah, you know, make charts to track your KPIs. Um, hey, that's a pitch for that is a thank you for the advertisement, uh, for stratosphere.io that that is pure because they make the charts for you. So and, if you're trying yeah. that, go, go, go check out stratosphere for free. Let's say it's like a dead period between earnings, you know, you have nothing to like add on to like your current holdings, build. Do the research to, and we're in the process of kind of doing this too. Do the research like you would own something or like of a business. And then don't just end with like, oh, this, you know, whatever this business sucks. Like assemble if it's a really, if you like the business, pick which price you buy it at and, and continue to track it. Um, that's just kind of the philosophy of there's always something to do. There's more than enough work to go around in the industry. I think there's a couple of benefits too. Like, for one, you'll become a better investor. You'll understand a wider array of businesses, which is going to make you better at analyzing businesses you already know well. Um, you'll get better at saying no to ideas the more businesses you study. And then if you jot stuff down, you know, you write about it, you track it, you'll have more value to share with other investors, which if you're trying to like grow your audience in some way or grow your network or even like have a resume of some sorts to like offer to companies like this is one way to do that yep that'll make All sense right. to me should we talk semis yep looks like from the start of the show we started a little after 9 15 we got about seven minutes left which i think will be perfect I don't have too many notes here, but we've had the majority of the semiconductor companies report their latest earnings i took a look at really for the last two weeks or so, Taiwan Semi, Texas Instruments, ASML, uh, LAM Research, to see what is really driving the industry at the moment. I think the big takeaway I saw is if we look at 2022, TSMC saw 74% growth in automotive, and then, and this is revenue growth, and 59% growth in HPC, which is kind of AI, cloud, you know, it's high performance computing. HPC is a much larger portion of the revenue. Um, but automotive is driving a lot of growth right now. And then if we look at Texas Instrument, they said that they had 30% growth in automotive revenue last quarter, so Q4, but the rest of their segments have been declining and the consolidated revenue actually contracted a bit. So I think one of the keys is that automotive is driving a lot of the, the sales right now. If we look at ASML and some of the uh, equipment companies, they continue to grow, but their bookings have declined. So we look at ASML's bookings. They went from, I think this is year over year, 
8.9 billion euros last uh, a year ago in Q4 to 6.3 billion this year. So it's kind of showing that the forward contracts are declining a bit. It's not like a terrible thing if you still have 6.3 billion dollars in bookings in the quarter. Um, but they still talk about the long-term opportunity for these semiconductor equipment things. If you look at management at ASML. They talk about 30 to 40 billion dollars in revenue in 2025 versus, and just as a comparison, just in Q4 this year, they're at 6.4 billion euros. So again, that, that would be quite a lot of growth. Um, and if we look at ASML sales, half of them are from the EUV things, uh, machines. So those crazy complex machines that everyone talks about. And then we look at LAM Research. Uh, they put up strong growth in the quarter, but it had weak deferred revenue as well. So as a whole, they're expecting this. There, there's going to be a slowdown in 2023 compared to 2022. It was kind of a banner year. I want to show some charts. If I share my screen here, um, where is it? Yeah, we want this one. And first, I want to talk about ASML. So just to describe this one to the listeners, one of the KPIs they have over at Stratosphere for ASML. Again, that's stratosphere.io. If you want to look up all this stuff, just make a free account. They have net EUV system sales revenue. And it's gone from in 2013 when they broke it out to only 60 million euros to over the last 12 months, 7 billion. I think that's I think that's annual. Yeah, annual. And it's grown at 70% a year. I mean, is this one of the best? business segments because of the monopoly, because no one has gotten even close to this. There's no one showing like China, China's government said, we want to do this. We're throwing as much money as a government into this and and they still can't do it. It's a 70% CAGR. 70% CAGR. And I don't think 70% is going to continue, but this kind of nominal rate, could they double this revenue from EV over the next three to four years? Probably. And you have all these orders from the companies that are launching factories in North America and Europe now. I mean, what, what, are, your, what, what are your thoughts on the industry right now in general? I know it's something you don't follow as closely, but it seems like automotive could be a near-term risk, but long-term things seem fine. And all these companies are so well run. I'm seeing all, the, all of them return capital to shareholders. I'm going to show the Texas Instruments chart later. All of them return capital to shareholders consistently. Uh, some some buyback plus due dividends, but there's consist really. I think the key from their financial departments is they're just so consistent, which is probably my biggest highlight if I'm looking at a finance department. Yeah, I mean, I have like zero relevant insights on the industry at large, but I remember ASML was pitched by um, Leandro on the show a couple. I want to say like a couple months ago, and. I remember we were both talking about it. And it's like, well, we don't know, you know, of course we don't know the technology behind it. And like, we have sort of a lack of understanding, but he kind of made the case. It's like, no one does like, no one really knows what's going on other than like the engineers that created it. What's really and they only know, and they only know one part of it. They only know their part. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes you just like understanding using anecdotes around the moat, like seeing seeing the moat test, seeing that China, the government tried to do this and couldn't, seeing the the contract, the backlog, like that, and then understanding like management's strategy and kind of whether or not they're competent and, and you think fair and honest, that's probably enough to invest. Yeah. And, and obviously t- taking into account the valuation. Yeah. And here's well, the other chart I want to have before we wrap up, we got about two minutes left, is 
what I've seen consistently looking at whether it's semiconductor, uh, I guess the software kind of like NVIDIA and AMD, maybe not as less, uh, or sorry, it's not as much. But if we look at the manufacturers and the equipment companies, like Texas Instruments here, I'm showing on the screen now, is they've just shown, shown consistent buybacks, consistent dividends paid. And if we look at their chart here, and this is the just for the viewers, they can see it um, if you're watching, but I'll just describe it. It's pretty easy to understand. Over the last 20 years, so from, say, December 2002, the Texas Instruments total dividends paid has grown at an 18.4% compound annual growth rate. And it's just been very, very consistent. It's gone from, what would you say, that well under $250 million, Ryan, to over $4 million paid. This is the type, like... Annually. Annual, yeah, each year, each year, yeah. This is the type of thing where you're... I mean, that's just... When you see a chart like this, that's just such a positive indicator for me that the culture at a company is is strong if you get if you get what i mean yeah i agree and kind of funny anecdote uh texas instruments ceo longtime ceo stepped down i believe that is right yeah passed on the reins that is correct yeah he is the one i guess that was in charge while they went through that really good Capital allocation strategy. Uh, if you are interested in that company, who did we do an interview with? John Rotanti. John, John Rotanti. Yeah, on Texas Instruments. That has been very popular among the listeners. So uh, check that out. Yeah, it's probably still relevant um, now, even though it was a little bit ago. I think it was about a year ago. But either way, I think that's going to do it for this episode, unless you have anything else, Ryan. And- no, uh, maybe thanks to Scotland in the chat. It says, good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon to you as well. It's actually morning where we, we are. are. We should probably mention that we've, we're changing the time frame that we're going to do this. We've kind of been experimenting. I apologize to the people that actually tuned in on a regular basis. Matt H being the one that comes to mind. Um, are, we're aiming for this time. Yeah, so we're going to, yeah, it'll take probably a few weeks or maybe in a few months to get people any sort of on a regular basis on the, sh- the, the live stream, but that doesn't really matter for anyone that's listening to the replays or listening to the podcast, but we're going to try to do a Thursday mornings, more of a noon Eastern-ish, probably noon to 1230 uh, on the lunch hour and then kind of not, which is 9 a.m. Pacific time. Hopefully that's better for people across the country and then possibly in Europe as well, but either way. You can watch the replays if you want or just listen. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all again for listening. We'll see you next week. 